Hello, and welcome to the Silicon Alley Podcast. Super excited you could join me today. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. On today's episode, I sit down with Alex Dar, the founder of LawDog. He's also an attorney, and LawDog is a platform that allows consumers to bring arbitration cases against companies whenever they've been wronged. And so why this is important is that without realizing it, you've probably agreed to a lot of forced arbitration hidden within the terms and conditions of a lot of the technology products and services that you use on a daily basis, you have agreed to waive your right to sue the company in court in case you have a grievance. And that's where arbitration comes in. And right now, this is really pertinent when you think about what's happened recently with Robinhood's decision to halt trading on some of the meme stocks, such as GameStop, AMC, and some of these other stocks that became popular on the subreddit forum called Wall Street Bets. So, for folks that were harmed, their only option is to take the forced arbitration route and go through this arbitration process. And so in this episode, Alex shares a little bit about what arbitration is, why it's important, and when it makes sense for you to seek out an arbitration suit. In addition, he spent time trading himself, spent a couple years just trading stocks after he had uh, done a stint at a corporate law firm and used a technique called arbitrage. Not to be confused with arbitration, but arbitrage is another financial technique that people use to make a lot of money in the stock market. So we're going to dive into those. Don't worry about mixing up arbitrage and arbitration. Alex is going to take care of that. And for a little bit more context on his background, he's been recognized for his work successfully defending consumers against global financial institutions such as JP Morgan Chase, US Bank, Citibank, and Bank of America. He knows his consumer protection to say the least. And LawDog levels that playing field, providing forced arbitration as a meaningful weapon to bring justice to the wrong. He's received his Juris Doctorate from the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. On the Silicon Alley Podcast, I talk to entrepreneurs, VCs, and top performers to understand what it truly takes to grow and scale a business. You'll hear some amazing stories and get actionable advice that you can apply in your own business and life. If you've not already, pound that subscribe button so you get notified when new episodes drop every Friday. And of course, if you hear something that you like, share the podcast with others. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's leveraged episode of the Silicon Alley Podcast featuring the Alex Dar. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate. Caught in a circle saying, I'll never leave this place. Alex, welcome to the Silicon Alley Podcast. Super excited to have you on today. Hey, thanks so much for having me, William. Looking forward to talking about uh, arbitration, Robin Hood, and all those good things today. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got a very interesting take. You're doing some very interesting work given everything that's gone on recently with Wall Street Bets and GameStop and Robin Hood. Before we dive into all that, kind of like, what's your interest in tech uh, and investing and arbitration and law? Like, where do all these things converge? Absolutely. So begin at the beginning, uh, born and raised in Ohio, uh, went to undergrad immediately after undergrad. I did my law school at uh, Ohio State, so kind of kept it in the um, in the state for most of my life. And uh, shortly after law school, I, I worked at a law firm for a little bit, worked for a federal judge in Chicago for a little while. Then I went over to a large law firm. So kind of all of that, that legal stuff. Um, and then um, sort of after graduation, I opened up my own firm, kind of dabbling a little bit. And now that's what I do pretty much exclusively um, and in partnership with other firms as well, which is what we'll talk about a little further down the line, which is Law Dog. But if we back it up, um, I can still vividly remember my first like 
what I consider a real computer, I suppose. Uh, 10 years old, fifth grade, Windows 95. Um, before that, we had, you know, DOS prompts and like a little postcard that said, like, type in this specific command and you'll like open the game of checkers or whatever. But um, <laughs> 10 years old, fifth grade, and, we, you know, Windows 95, the internet, the real deal. And I mean, that was it. I mean, instantly hooked. It's a story you've heard a million times. I'm sure a thousand people who are listening to this podcast know the story too. Um, just enthralled, couldn't get enough. You break it, you fix it, hopefully, you break it again. You know, you're downloading all sorts of sketchy software and then trying to install it. <laughs> and, um, and that's it. I mean, I was just, I was just absolutely hooked and played a lot of video games online, huge PC gamer. And so just, Instantly from the get go, I was all about tech. I, it just has this like really. I have a really visceral response to it. I I just love it. Everything about it. Um, so growing up, I didn't grow up like particularly well off or anything. I mean, obviously we were able to have a computer when I was ten years old, so that was nineteen ninety five. So we weren't like you know living in the poorhouse yeah. or anything. Um, but still very traditional notions of how one is successful in life, right? The whole doctor lawyer kind of approach. And um, I have an identical twin brother. His name is Jordan. And um, and so Jordan decides he's going to be a doctor. He's committed to being a doctor. And I'm his identical twin brother. I don't want to be the same as him. So literally by process of elimination, Alex is going to be a lawyer. And, and that was, I mean, that's literally the extent of it. And then I just followed through and executed on the plan. So I went to undergrad, pre-law, got all the you know minors and majors, straight off to law school. And, you know, there I am. I graduated as as a lawyer and um, and start practicing law. And so, um, like I said, so I I did kind of went through some more traditional type of uh, legal training, but the large law firm, the um, federal clerkship, et cetera. And um, and then around 2014, I decided to quit the large law firm and really got into finance. Heads first, right into finance, and had a couple of really great years doing some financial stuff, some arbitrage work, and um, and, and loved it because finances, in a lot of ways, finance and tech have the same um, overlap in that they give you exposure to incredible leverage, just in different ways. Right? I've, I, what I've always loved about technology is the idea that you can hit send on an email and you know send the equivalent of ten thousand letters to different people, right, and just instantly, yeah. and. Um, you know, so that, that's one form of leverage. And then, of course, with finance, I think everyone understands the idea of leverage. We've seen the big short and we, we understand how Wall Street works. And this idea that you can, you know, buy chunks of a company, right? You can like, you know, you can own things. You can own a lot of stuff. You can do it on margin. And so um, so I think I think finance appealed to me to the same reason that tech does. It's like this. It, it gives you this outsized power um, and then compared to interacting with the, the real physical world around you. Um, so I, I started doing the finance stuff a lot and then, and then kind of law came back around, it probably was around 2016 when I started getting really interested in arbitration. And, um, for those who don't know, arbitration is, um, you know, the, the, the layman kind of short way I say it a lot of times is it's like private court. It's a little different than that, but you don't file your case in court. You file your case with an arbitration, um, company instead. And then rather than having a judge, they hire an arbitrator who's typically a lawyer or even a retired judge. And you privately, along with the other party, you present your dispute and you settle it. And so what I had around 2016 is kind of this convergence of finance interest, tech interest, and consumer arbitration. And I think part of the reason I liked arbitration was because um, it's informal in nature compared to going to court, right? So when you do court, you literally, you go to court. 
versus with arbitration, those systems are set up so that you can resolve a lot of disputes without going anywhere, without actually having to be anywhere. It's, you know, it's drafting papers, participating in Zoom conferences. Now that's a real popular thing ever since COVID started is doing these hearings um, by Zoom. And so you have this confluence of all three, all three things together where I love the idea of this kind of the digital nomad idea, the idea that um, that I could be practicing law, but sort of doing it remotely in a more technologically savvy way. Um, you know, the same idea as like the startup founder who can, you know, start a company from their basement or their garage or whatever with just their computer. It's the same thing, except it's starting a law firm with, you know, with just your computer from the basement. And so um, given my interest in finance, what I've what I've specialized in or focused on for the last five years of doing this now are primarily um, related to financial kind of banking regulations for both consumers and for the banks. So I've done a lot of uh, a lot of consulting for um, for like you know large banks, and then I also represent consumers in actions against banks in the form of arbitration that I do uh, yeah. that I do online. So that's kind of how all three of those things have come together. Now is that you know I. I'm in my office right now. Like this is my <laughs> law firm. It's a it's a very boring, nondescript room. It's not fancy, but because of technology, um, you know, I'm I'm able to run a whole law firm like this. And then, of course, I'm practicing law, and my primary emphasis is on finance and yeah. and consumer um, banking regulations. So that's kind of how all three of those have come together right now. And then, of course, we'll talk a little bit more about Robinhood and GameStop down the line here. <laughs> but um, but that's kind of what has me in my current situation as you know a, a law firm. Dar Law, it's you know, and, and this is it right here. This is the global headquarters <laughs> of Dar Law, or wherever my computer and internet is, you know, at any point in time. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was going to say, you know, if, if anyone who's watching this, uh, you don't, you're not dressed up like an attorney, right? Like, I'm not no stuffy suit or tie or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, it's it's um, it's interesting, and I appreciate you describing arbitration. And it's really interesting that you found this sort of unique way where you could leverage your time or the lifestyle that you want, so to speak, right? Where you're not having to go to court and do the typical things that you think of, of attorneys by finding this niche. So how did you, I mean, you kind of talked about the interests, but what, what was the aha moment where you realized that you could do arbitration remotely and be able to practice law, but in a lifestyle that more fit what you were, what you were interested in? Yeah. So like I said, in 2014 and 2015, I was doing a lot of the financial arbitrage. And um, as is the case with most arbitrage, you know, it, it's usually an informational, um, you know, advantage that you have. And eventually, uh, a rational market is going to find your informational advantage and, um, and your arbitrage will go away. And that's, that's essentially what happened in 2015. The arbitrage became, it didn't go away entirely, but became, it became a lot less appealing. And, and so I started thinking to myself, like, okay, how do we put food on the table now? Um, after, you know, after these two yeah. successful years, how to, what's the next step? And so I had a colleague who had previously mentioned arbitration to me. And so I, I just really started looking into, it. I had all this newfound time. And so I just threw myself into, into this world of arbitration to learn all about it. And what I found was that same leverage that I was talking about earlier that we get from tech and that we get in finance arbitration offers that same mm -hmm. leverage because the, um, as I said, it, it's a private system. So whereas when I go and file something in court, there's maybe a, a filing fee of like $100 to file a case, right? But the the judge, the jury, I mean, everything, the whole legal system is paid for. You, you pay tax dollars. That's how it's paid for. Well, arbitration does not have the same type of 
you know, income source. And so what it means is that there are costs associated with arbitration. Um, and when you're talking about consumer arbitration, which is what I'm doing almost exclusively, most of those costs fall on the business. And so what that creates is it, is it creates um, an incentive for businesses to quickly resolve cases. And typically it favors a smaller case. So a case that might only be $2,000 or $3,000 in value, which is relatively small um, in terms of litigation. Um, what it does is it the consumer pays a filing fee. And so now the business is in a situation where they can pay thousands of dollars in arbitration costs, and maybe they're going to lose, right? And even if they win, they've still had to pay those costs. Or they can make a good faith settlement offer to the consumer prior to any of that. And so what it, that leverage there is what allows me to handle cases that otherwise um, might not get any attention from the traditional um, you know, legal market that's out there. there for example, um, you know, what we're going to get into today is some of this talk about Robinhood and GameStop and um, the opportunities for arbitration there. And I've had a number of, um, of attorneys who do this. They do FINRA arbitration, which is the arbitration involving financials and brokerages and the like. And these individuals have reached out to, um, to myself and my partner, Robert Sugar, with our, our law dog app. And where they're at is they say, I've been doing FINRA arbitration for a long time. A case has to be you know, $75,000 or more for it to make sense for my law firm's model, which is a more traditional, you know, law firm model. And so what, what we've been able to do with Law Dog is we're, we're using scale that we're able to do via technology, via the processes and operations that we put in place to be able to handle these smaller claims. Um, and so not only is it a good, a good business that we can make money in, but what is, What's doubly good about it is that it democratizes access um, to uh, to the legal system because these small claims are claims where lawyers are literally telling me explicitly, like, we we will not take this case. It's not big enough for us. Yeah. And historically, those consumers would have nowhere to go. But thanks to arbitration and thanks to the model that we've established at LawDog, we're able to handle those smaller cases. And because they're small... You know, we see that as an advantage because then when you couple that with the leverage of arbitration, we can settle a lot of small cases or at least get good faith settlement offers relatively quickly. And as long as we do it at scale, it works. Yeah, it's really interesting, Alex. And I definitely want to dive into that. But before we do, you mentioned because they're, they're different, but they sound very similar. Uh, what you were doing in the finance space with arbitrage, and now you're talking about the legal arbitration. Can you quickly define the two and delineate them? Because I want to make sure that if someone's familiar maybe with one or two terms, that they don't confuse the two. No, no, I appreciate the opportunity because a lot of times folks will reach out to me and they'll say, I want to learn more about arbitrage. And, and I sort of, and I know <laughs> they mean arbitration, but I sort of want to respond to it. Well, I can teach you about that too, but I think you want arbitration instead. Um, so so arbitrage is, you know, um, in the simplest form, um, this idea of there being a lack of synchronicity uh, um, where markets aren't in sync, right? So you can go on one side of the island where there's an abundance of oranges and you can buy an orange for 50 cents. You can go to the other side of the island where um, oranges sell for a dollar and you can arbitrage that difference. You go and you buy oranges for 50 cents and you sell them for a dollar. You didn't grow the orange. All you've done is taken advantage of the, you know, the disinformation and you profit. And as long as it costs you less than 50 cents to go through that whole process, you're making money and life is good. Um, so, I mean, that, that's the, the general idea of arbitrage, right? And, um, and we've seen it a lot. I know it was very popular in, um, when we talk about crypto, right? Was we're talking, yeah. as long as we're talking about trading, that's probably a good example. Earlier, um, 
when the crypto markets were more nascent um, and younger, what you had was you had between the various different platforms, the, um, the exchange rate between US dollars and whatever crypto asset you have um, was maybe more favorable or less favorable. Mm-hmm. And a lot of very intelligent and um, you know, entrepreneurial folks built out um, you know, algorithms and systems where they were essentially taking advantage of those um, the yeah. misinformation. So if I could buy a Bitcoin for $5 over here, but sell it for $5 and 10 cents, as long as the transaction costs didn't eat up those 10 cents of difference, you could, yeah. you know, almost unlimited money. And, um, you know, I had a friend that did get, that in South Korea. So they, he, he was, uh, had a friend who had a friend who was studying abroad in South Korea and there was a discrepancy between Bitcoin in the US and Bitcoin in South Korea. And so they would buy Bitcoin in the US because it was cheaper, sell it in South Korea and then cash out and take the cash back. Now they couldn't scale that. And this was a long time ago, but that's uh, an example of arbitrage in the crypto space. Right. And I was just reading an article uh, about one of the early Bitcoin, um, you know, billionaires who one of the ways he started was he would um, he would buy Bitcoin and then he would go into China where Bitcoin was more expensive and he would sell the Bitcoin for cash in China. So he'd buy Bitcoin outside of China, go into China and then he would sell at that inflated rate and he would leave China with a backpack full of cash. Not sure if I really recommend that idea. Just be careful if anyone wants to try it. (laughs) Um, but yeah, that, so that that's our idea of arbitrage, right? Taking taking advantage of the um, price uh, the lack of synchronicity, right? Yeah. Um, so arbitration is is something completely different, or at least mostly different, right? And it's it is this idea of of dispute resolution and the forum in which you do it. And you know, I, I said private court, but the reason why that's a little too simplistic is because it's 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 more severe than that in some ways. What you sign up for when you sign up for arbitration is that you won't go to court. Period. Instead, you're putting your um, your claim in the hands of of a private resolution, almost like um, going back to like ancient days of going to the the elders of your tribe or something to resolve a dispute between people. And in this case, the elders are these attorneys or retired judges. Um, but it's it's sort of this idea of you're not going to court at all. It's not court in a different setting. It's it's a completely private thing. And it looks a lot like court because it was created by lawyers and the whole idea is still um, you know designed to be a dispute resolution um, system. But it's it's not court at all. And so that's what arbitration is. But like I said, there's an arbitrage opportunity in arbitration. And that is when you're filing a consumer case and the consumer has to pay $200 or in a lot of cases, $0. So um, you know, one thing that everyone who's listening to this podcast um, has almost certainly agreed to arbitration for is with their cell phones, um, Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile. You might not know it, but you agreed when you signed up that any disputes you have with those companies, you're going to resolve through binding arbitration. Um, again, you might not know that, but you've, you've agreed to that. And um, so, but with those companies, they will cover your filing fee. So if you have a grievance with those companies and you file an arbitration with them, um, you know, as I talked to you today, last time I checked, they, they cover even that $200 consumer filing fee. But then those businesses have to pay thousands of dollars for their filing fees. And so if you have a dispute over $1,000 or $2,000, um, it's the, the financially intelligent move for the business is to make you a good offer to avoid arbitration entirely. And so that's the arbitrage opportunity. There is the ability to pay zero or two hundred dollars and get a thousand dollars or more worth of relief. Um, so arbitration and arbitrage, two totally different things, and yet there's the arbitrage opportunity that arbitration presents. Yeah. 
No, thanks for breaking that down, Alex. And it's an interesting way to uh, to look at it. And I can see where your background uh, backgrounds kind of start to converge. I'm I'm interested because you you mentioned how a lot of the cell phone companies, but a lot of the apps, and this includes Robinhood. When you sign up and you look at the T's and C's and the user agreement and all those things, when you just most people don't read them and just click I accept and then move on and download the app or start using it, they are agreeing to arbitration. So why, if a company has to pay and cover the expenses from a consumer perspective in arbitration, but they don't necessarily have to in the in a regular legal setting, why would a company force people to go through binding arbitration versus uh, going to, to court? Yeah, so the, the big advantage that arbitration presents is it allows um, it allows the company to avoid class actions. So by forcing the individual into arbitration, part of that agreement says you agree that you won't sue us in any way, shape, or form, including in a class action. And that's because class actions are incredibly expensive. Um, because essentially what it does is it empowers one individual who can find a lawyer to bring a claim on behalf of thousands of people who might not one, who might not care that they were harmed, um, and two, who might never figure it out or call a lawyer or anything along those lines. So um, a, even a hundred or a thousand savvy individuals who use arbitration, um, that's still probably cheaper for the company than having to pay uh, you know, a $50 million class action lawsuit that otherwise they would be exposed to. So that's the, the base appeal. Um, and then the, the the other kind of um, tangential benefit too is that in court, um, there's this idea of discovery where you ask for relevant information from the other side and they do the same with you. And you have to turn over this information as long as it's relevant. That's a huge, um, uh, huge oversimplification. But, um, but businesses don't like to do that. You know, businesses have a lot of trade secrets. And even if it's not an outright trade secret, there's a lot of information that they would rather. Um, you know, keep out of the public for whatever, maybe it's competitive advantage or, or any one of a number of reasons. Um, aside from the fact that discovery can be expensive, having to go through all of your records and pull all these documents. And arbitration has much more limited discovery. And so I think that's another one of the big appeals for um, uh, for big businesses. So um, again, what? but to your point, um, an individual can do well in arbitration, maybe better than, almost certainly better than they would do in a class action. And so, um, so even though the businesses are doing better with arbitration, consumers can do better with arbitration as well if they're savvy and if they know about it. Um, and I think, I think one of the reasons why I love talking about arbitration is because it's it's incredibly relevant right now in that um, it's everywhere. Like we said, the telecom companies have it. Um, Robinhood had it. Um, we're talking on Zoom. I'm I'm almost certain that we probably agree to arbitration when we signed up for Zoom. I don't know because like. Almost everyone else in the world, I didn't read the T and Cs when I signed up, and and I'm a lawyer who specializes in arbitration, and I don't read the Ts and Cs very often. So I mean, the the regular consumer, good luck, right? Um, but then, but then the, the other side of it, and you can appreciate this, William, as as a person with a startup, is um, what I see a lot, and I, I do some consulting for startups as well. I'm invested in startups as. Um, you have this, um, you know, back in the 90s and 80s, everyone wanted to be like Mike. They wanted to be like Michael Jordan. When they played basketball, they'd stick their tongue out like Michael did um, because that was what everybody wanted to be like. And something that I see a lot in startups, and I'm sure you see this as well, is that people um, in these various startups, they will try to keep things cheap, trying to bootstrap, right? They will um, they'll copy ideas from the big boy, from the big players, right? So they'll go to Amazon and they'll say, well, 
Amazon is a very we- very wealthy company. They probably hire excellent lawyers. Their T's and C's must be incredible and amazing. And so they copy and paste them into their T's and C's. Like, well, you know, I, I run a similar business, so I'm going to copy it. Maybe I'll change a little bit of language. Um, and, that, and that's how they create T's and C's. And so I see this a lot as an arbitration attorney. I see these businesses incorporating arbitration into their T's and C's. And I think to myself, I'm almost certain that you do not understand what you have just incorporated into your terms and conditions, but you've done it because you want to be like Amazon. You want to be like Google. You want to be like Facebook. And that's admirable, of course. But um, but that lack of education as to what you're signing yourself up for, um, you know, Amazon has to worry about class actions, right? Because a class action is Amazon. I think I just saw that they settled some related to um, wages for like $70 million, um, you know. Amazon wants to avoid that $70 million judgment. So they're willing to pay out maybe $3 million worth of arbitrations. But your fresh, nascent um, startup cannot absorb $3 million worth of arbitration settlements, right? So for them, they might be better served not having binding arbitration and just you know defending cases um, to the extent they come in one at a time because the chances that they're going to get hit with a class action is, is just, it's just a totally different level of exposure. Yeah. And yet I see those arbitration provisions in in these T's and C's. And so, you know, the message, if nothing else, I'd like to get out to, to some of the entrepreneurs who are watching um, or listening to this is that, um, you know, your T's and C's are important. And if you have an arbitration provision in there, um, I hope you understand what it means. And I hope if you had a lawyer who helped you look at that, um, I hope that, uh, you know, she or he knows what they were getting into there because um, these things, they matter. And um, and so it's just like with anything else, right? Where you're, where you're doing a startup, you're an accountant, your, you know, operations, your HR, like you have to wear a million hats. And um, to a degree, some of that has to be legal because legal is expensive. And so at least do some some basic Googling and understand what you're getting yourself into um, or, or, or reach out to a, to a lawyer who can who can help you with that, because um, these things, they matter and they can, um, you know, they can definitely uh, derail a, a good startup if they get hit with even like 20 or $30,000 worth of, of settlements you know, that can wipe out um, a lot of startups. Yeah. No, Alex, that's really great advice. And it's definitely uh, definitely something that when you think about the startup culture in general is you don't, like you said, you have limited resources. So you go copy what you know works, right? You know that Google and Facebook or all these large companies have spent a lot of time on their user experience. So I don't need to try to reinvent where this button goes on an app, right? Because I can pretty much guess that they've done a lot of UI and UX research. But when it comes to the legal side, applying that same type of mentality could actually be harmful because you're not at all in the same level, at least in the early stages of a startup, as as some of those large companies. So it's really, really interesting and, and great advice. What do you recommend then? So look for an attorney. How do I find a good startup attorney? What are some what's some thoughts around that from an entrepreneur perspective of how do I how do I know when to bring someone on and how do I find a good startup attorney? Yeah, it's it's a very challenging um, situation that any startup finds themselves when they're when they're in that position. Um, I know I've worked with startups where um, one of the first things they did is once they got a decent seed round, they went and spent you know thirty thousand dollars to get their proper incorporation done and, and everything. Um, you know that's one way to go about it, but I really would counsel against um, being in a hurry to go out and hire just a traditional lawyer because I think that a startup has unique needs and and um, the situation there is just is just completely different from a more established business that um, a expensive lawyer is going to understand and and resonate with. 
Um, so I think the, my first recommendation is work within your network, right? I mean, this is why um, when you're doing a startup, you try and reach out and try and get a broad, um, a broad array of investors. And I think this is one of my um, one of my contributions as an investor is that I can. This is one of the ways that I can guide startups. And um, so I've always found that referrals are the best way to go whenever you're trying to find a lawyer. Um, you know, just as with anything else. Um, you can you can game the marketing. You can game Google reviews. You can game the um, Avo reviews, which is the kind of lawyer specific website. Um, and so I've I've always found that referrals are are the best way to go forward because um, it's just you really need to, to to rely on somebody. So that's my that's my first recommendation. But the time when you bring them in, I think I I always hesitate. All right, not, excuse me, not hesitate. I always counsel um, startups not to be in such a hurry to bring in legal um, until you've at least vetted ideas through further. Because I, I was working with a startup just last summer and the founder was was just obsessed on trademarking this idea. They, I need a trademark, I need a trademark. And I explained to them, I said, okay, you're, you're going to spend you know $3,000 on a trademark. You have no product yet or anything along those lines. Do you really think the trademark is essential? And this person was was you know just insistent that they needed this trademark, they needed to make spend this on legal. And um, as of a month ago, that startup's closed, uh, you know, finished, it's done. And I'm not saying it's because of that decision by any stretch of the imagination. But I, you do see the situation where people get ahead of themselves. Um, yeah. Trademarks are valuable, you know, legal, you know, I'm a lawyer, so I'm biased here, but, you know, legal is something that you should spend money on. Um, but the, the time has to be right. And I think oftentimes the time to, to get, you know, proper legal representation involved is typically later than what some founders um, want to do. And again, I think it's this mentality that founders have that um, they need to rep, they need to be like the big guys, right? They need to be like the Amazons and the Google and the Facebook, and they need to form their LLC. They need to have a cap table because they think that's what's necessary. And um, all that stuff can be done after the fact. If you've got a great product that's humming along, um, you know, th- that's the time to to start worrying about things like that. But um, it's getting the cart before the horse a little bit, trying to trying to get that legal in place before you even have some established revenue or at least some type of proof of concept. Uh, So that's my advice. Um, You know, I guess I'll toss in a disclaimer. Maybe I should have tossed at the beginning. I'm a lawyer. I'm not trying to give any legal advice here. This is informational, um, Mm -hmm. you know, hiring a lawyer is an important decision. And I encourage everyone to be, you know, very, um, you know, uh, very careful and to do, uh, you know, good due diligence before hiring a lawyer or engaging in any type of, um, you know, legal endeavor. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. This is information, same on the investing side. We're not telling you to, as we start to get into some of the uh, the, uh, the the things that happen with Wall Street bets and things like that. So um, yeah, no, that's really great advice though, Alex, because it's very easy to, especially early on, and, and if you're a first-time entrepreneur about wanting to like protect your idea or protect what you have, and as you said, starting to spend money on things that don't really make sense because you don't know if anyone's going to respond or there's value in your product or service or whatever or whatever company you're building. So protecting something that you don't know is even if it's even valuable yet doesn't doesn't make sense. Um, so right. I think that that's a really really great advice. So getting back to Law Dog and to the uh, the opportunity for arbitrage and the arbitration space, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, more about the business, kind of what you're working on, and talk talk a little bit about what's going on now? I'd love to start to. Um, understand more about what's happening in the arbitra- uh, arbitration space with what's happened with GameStop and Wall Street Bets and Robinhood specifically. 
um, and and what they did with halting trading. Yeah. So um, so, so I've had my practice, which is Dar Law, um, and I've been running it for like I said. It's really been my focus for about five years now doing consumer arbitration. And so my partner in Law Dog is, uh, is Robert Sugar. And Robert has a law firm in Columbus, Ohio. And his work specializes in um, or is focused on kind of these um, areas of law where it's, it's high volume, kind of low, low per case returns. And so, um, you know, this is a proven business model. We see it primarily in personal injury, right, um, where... Um, even though you, you hear about the $3 million verdicts and whatnot, that's not how a, um, how a personal injury firm really makes its money. It makes its money by doing a lot of small cases that might be worth $2,000, $3,000 a piece. Um, and, and it does those in volume, and that's how it makes its money. And so, um, so Robert's firm is, is kind of focused on this idea of building out a process um, building out um, a machine is what we call it, the machine, um, to handle all sorts of different type of legal work that is high volume and perhaps relatively low, you know, uh, low case value. And so it's just it was it was just a perfect um, dovetail opportunity. He and I have have spoke, you know, over the years back and forth and been aware of each other. And um, and so we got together about a year ago and we decided that we wanted to. Um, launch this idea of the law dog. And the law dog idea is building access to the law for these small cases that otherwise you probably couldn't find a lawyer for. I, I'm one person, my law firm is just me, and um, and I'm you know up to my eyeballs in work. And I, I turn down a lot of a lot of arbitrations every day because they they're too small. So I'm essentially starting to get into the world of where those spinner arbitrators are who said, I can't take this case. It's under 75,000. I'm getting to that, not to that same degree, but I'm getting to the same place. And so um, the idea was that we would come together and we would take these, the, the types of cases that I work on um, and, and other types of consumer arbitrations. And if we use technology to make the process as efficient as possible, um, and if we use the machine that Robert's already built with his law firm, kind of coupled with my focus and expertise in um, consumer arbitration, the, um, the confluence then is mass arbitration. And I do that already to a small degree, but we want, we want to scale it up. And that's where, you know, that's where LawDog was born out of is this idea of helping hundreds and thousands of individuals um, with these relatively small cases like your AT&T or T-Mobile arbitration or your um, your claim against your internet provider, or an issue you might have with Amazon, or as is the case du jour, um, you know, Robinhood, GameStop, AMC, etc. And so, we've been building out the brand for the last you know about a year now, maybe nine months, and and then the GameStop situation happened. And so, for those who who have been living under a rock and don't know what we're talking about, um, in January um, and February, uh, the price the the Share value of GameStop um, went up dramatically. I think at the turn of the year, back you know, on January first, it was at like ten dollars a share. By January twenty eighth, it was at like four hundred and eighty dollars a year. Was the intraday high that it hit? So you're talking literally a forty eight x increase in the value of GameStop. And part of the reason that was able to happen was because GameStop had been sold short dramatically by hedge funds and and other organizations. And for those who don't know, selling short is this idea where you're essentially betting against the stock. But GameStop had been so heavily bet against um, that if that price were to start going up, 
the people betting against it wouldn't be able to get out of their trade fast enough. And what, what happens then is called a short squeeze, where the people who are betting against the stock want to get out of that bet. But the way that you get out of that bet is by buying the stock. So if you have upward pressure on the stock because people are buying it because they think it's a good company, and then you have the people who are betting against it also have to buy it to try and get out of the stock, it drives the price higher, more people run for the doors, and, and you, you have a, a good old-fashioned short squeeze. And the catalyst for the short squeeze, there, there were several, but um, you know, I think back in 2019, Michael Burry, who's famous from the big short and betting against the housing market, um, he took a long position. He, he thought that GameStop was undervalued, and he was very vocal about this. Um, we had um, the, uh, the CEO of Chewy, or, or at least the founder of Chewy, he, he got in as well. Um, and so they, they started reworking the board of directors, a lot of good positive press, the PlayStation 5 and the new Xbox come out. And so now there's all of a sudden, there's all this good upward pressure for GameStop. And we have a, a good old fashioned short squeeze. Like I said, it, over the course of a month, GameStop goes from 10 to 48. Um, and like I said, about four weeks. And what happened um, among the, the various stories that grew out of that, and there's still a lot of questions. We don't know entirely what happened. But um, one decision that was particularly controversial was that Robinhood, which is a, a broker, it's very popular among um, the younger retail investor, which is to say the, the, you know, the single person who's got $5,000 that they want to bet in the stock market. Um, it's, it's a very well done app. It has a very strong gamification aspect to it, a very strong social aspect. So it just really appeals to a younger audience. Um, Robinhood decided to halt trading of GameStop and not just halt trading. Um, specifically, they, they forbid anyone from buying any more GameStop, but you could sell GameStop. And so that's naturally going to cause a, um, a downward pressure on the stock. And that was one of the things that um, Steve Stivers, who's one of the um, Congress members, he, he talked about during the congressional hearings that followed. He said, well, naturally, if someone's only selling stock, then that's going to bring the price of the stock down. And some have contended that when Robinhood made that decision to cancel buying of GameStop, that they essentially killed the short squeeze, it brought the price down. And so individuals who are partaking in that short squeeze, maybe buying at 200, 300 or $400, um, they, they got left holding the bag quite a bit because the price crashed back down to $40. Um, however, it's back up to 120. And some people think the, the short squeeze is still alive. So it, it's unclear. But the questions that are still out there, and we have some answers now, but we don't have all the answers, is, you know, why did Robinhood do what it did? Was there some kind of conspiratorial nature to this where the hedge funds who were losing their shirts went over to their friends at Robinhood and said, hey, you'd really help us out if you could stop buying? Um, we don't know entirely, but it, the optics are sure pretty awful on the decision making. And so um, we think that there are a lot of claims that are going to rise out of this situation. And I think you know, the, the one claim that probably hasn't gotten enough coverage is this idea of um, of how people were affected just by these brokerages crashing, right? And this is not something that's specific to Robinhood. We have a lot of clients who used, you know, Ameritrade, Schwab, Fidelity. On those days when the market was going crazy, uh, you'd go to log into your uh, your brokerage account and you simply couldn't, you know, you couldn't, you either couldn't, you couldn't buy, you couldn't sell, you couldn't pull up um, options, you couldn't, you just couldn't do anything. Not just this isn't just Robinhood saying you're not allowed to buy. I mean, this is you just couldn't get access. Uh, we have one client who you know who lost a hundred thousand dollars because he bought um, shortly before the market opened. The market opened, the his app just completely crashed, and by the time he was able to sell, he had lost a hundred thousand dollars. And this was trading AMC, and 
I think what's frustrating for me as a consumer advocate is that um, when I, I saw this happen firsthand, I'm a trader and I trade on Schwab and I couldn't get in. And it says, you know, if you need to make a trade immediately, you can call you can call this phone number. Now, I, I never called that phone number personally, um, but I'm sure if I would have, they would have said something like, we're experiencing high volume and we'll get to you in an hour. But but people did call when they couldn't access their apps. And when they called, they get busy signals. They'd be on a two hour wait. And so. You know, one of the things that we talk about a lot in tech is the idea of the consumer experience and making sure that you have a robust enough system that you can handle these um, these peak events like this. And I think what the GameStop uh, short squeeze, or whatever we want to call it, what it demonstrated was that a lot of these um, these apps just aren't ready for prime time. They don't have the infrastructure and backend um, like, you know, I mean, we see when Gmail goes down, um, you know, I know from my relationships I have with people who work at Google, I mean, there are command centers that are designed to, you know, to minimize outage, right? I mean, it's the infrastructure that that these companies like Facebook and Amazon and, and um, Google have built, it's just incredible. And um, and these are these are companies that are giving out by and large a lot of free products, right? And yeah. so here now you're talking about brokerage, you know, you're talking about these are some of the most um, you know most important um, apps and systems for our public markets, and and they're not able to handle you know incredibly high loads. I think that's um, that's the the untold story so far, and I think that's where we're going to have a lot of claims related to to GameStop and Robinhood. So with LawDog, this is uh, one of the kind of the first claims that we're going to be handling are mass claims against Robinhood, TD, Schwab, etc. For individuals who were affected one way or the other because they couldn't buy, because they couldn't sell. And then we are going to keep looking into this idea of how did Robinhood potentially, um, whether intentionally or not, but how did they, I guess, manipulate and implies an intentional um, uh, messing with the market. But perhaps they um, they might have um, changed the way the market works, even if they didn't mean to do it intentionally, just by their actions. And so we think there are probably claims there as well, and definitely a lot of questions that we still are going to ask about what happened there. But again, I think the untold story is this idea of these systems just simply weren't robust enough to handle a crazy situation like this. And, and I admit, I mean, obviously, it was a huge situation. It's you know maybe once in a decade yeah. type of thing, but, um, but the outages that we saw were pretty substantial. And so we're encouraging anyone who is affected to go to lawdog.com, just as you would think to spell it, lawdog.com. And give us your information. And we're going to be looking into whether we can help you with your claims. And our plan is to file a mass arbitration um, against those various companies. And we plan on taking advantage of that arbitrage opportunity in terms of filing fees and costs to try and help out consumers who were negatively affected by what happened uh, related to the GameStop AMC um, short squeezes. Gotcha. Yeah. So thanks for explaining all that, Alex. So it sounds like you're doing essentially a class action <laughs> uh, arbitration, a mass arbitration, right? Yeah, I think the this is ground that's already been trod before. There's a few firms that are that are doing this type of um, this type of work. And again, it's primarily against tech companies. So there were you know 10,000 plus arbitrations filed against Uber related to the, the independent contractor employee issue that we've heard a lot about for the mm-hmm. past few years. And of course, California passed the proposition to try and, and resolve that issue, um, but but there are firms that are filing tens of thousands of arbitrations against Postmates and Uber and DoorDash, um, essentially trying to take advantage of this arbitrage opportunity. And what's really funny and and I don't, I, I think funny as a as a cynic, I suppose, 
is that now these companies are turning around and trying to avoid going to arbitration because they realize it's going to cost them a ton of money to do arbitration. And so now they want class actions. And um, that argument has not been working out very well for them. And they've been trying to go to court to be to force um, these uh, these plaintiffs firms, these these firms that are representing plaintiffs to to take care of these cases in class action now. And so it's it's sort of funny in a in a cynical way to see how the the tables have been turned a little bit. But but the idea is sound, right? The arbitrage opportunity is there. And and we're doing the same thing here. We think there's opportunities in mass arbitration um, to to get good resolution for our clients. And I think we can do better than a class action in a lot of ways um, because the process is so much faster. It's so much simpler. I think that for a, um, particularly for the small dollar claims, although I think any, any claim will do well in arbitration, but for the small dollar claims, rather than having to wait all the way through a class action, um, you know, we could have resolution for you in six to nine months potentially versus um, Robinhood's already been uh, sued related to its inability to stay um, to, to keep its systems online. So back in March 2020, yeah. when COVID um, started taking over and we had these bad market crashes, um, Robinhood systems just they weren't capable of handling all of the load that we saw during those events. And there have been class actions filed um, related to those March 2020 outages. And that class action is moving forward. Last I saw, they're getting ready to maybe to try and settle the claim. But you're talking about they'll settle the claim, and then maybe in six months, they're, you know, the process will move forward. And maybe a year from now, those individuals will, will be getting paid. So you're talking about 24 months from the time that the, the wrong happened to when you get paid. And I think in arbitration, what we have um, for consumers is the opportunity to get resolution within six to nine months rather than having to wait two years. And I think that we can probably do better for consumers in terms of just their net return um, via arbitration as compared to. Uh, a class action. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's interesting, Alex. And without giving judgment as to anyone's investing decision or ethos, but there are probably people that would have lost money regardless. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, how do you, so, so when you're taking on a case or thinking about a case, like how do I know if I've actually got a case or it was just someone's just not a good trader or just made a bad decision? Like, you know, how do you, how do you sift that out from the legitimate cases where people we're, 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 we're harmed. It's, it's a difficult thing to do. I, I, there's the easy cases, right? There's the black and white cases. There's the, the one client we have who, um, you know, bought AMC at, um, at 23, just before the market opened, the market opens, he wants to sell because it's gone up a little bit more. Um, and he, he just simply can't, he tries to log in. He can't log in by the time he is able to log in. He has to sell for $13, uh, you know, over 10,000 shares. You lost a hundred thousand dollars. That's a case that that's that's really you know really a good case. And then, as I said, there's there's these other questions of, you know, um, did Robinhood manipulate the market by mm-hmm. you know by getting rid of buying? Those are going to be. Um, I think it's a case by case basis. I think if all you have is this idea of Robinhood manipulated the market and drove down the price of GameStop, and so I should have made more money, and I'm still holding to this day. Um, I, I don't think that's probably going to be an actionable case. Um, and so it's it's hard to give a, a clear, bright line rule, but I think that's probably yeah. both sides of the coin right there. Is there's there are very clear cases, and then there are some cases that are just, you know, you're you're kind of grasping at straws a little bit. It's yeah. it's you got caught up in the moment and you got burnt by the moment, and that happens to traders every single day. Um so the everything in between is kind of a case by case basis, and that's again. And I'm not I'm not saying this to shill or anything. Um, I say this to all of my clients, um, not just in the Robinhood um, 
yeah. realm, or, you know, and all I say, if you're, if you're not sure, send me an email, give me the details and, um, and I'll tell you yes or no. And just don't be mad when I tell you no. Right. And because, <laughs> um, for a lot of people, uh, you know, the a hundred dollars, $200, $500 means a lot to them. And, um, and sometimes I have to tell them, I think you have a good claim. I just can't handle it. It just doesn't fit my business model. And that, that's a really challenging email to write for me personally, because, um, you know, as of just maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, right, when I was in college or law school, the idea of $200 was a lot of money to me, right? But, um, and so now to say, like, sorry, like, that's not worth my time. Is, <laughs> and that's not what I mean to say, but it's, that is sort yeah. of what one might imply when I say that. Um, that that's, that's a tough email to write, I think. But, um, but then there are some cases that just aren't winners, right? That are not, not even just aren't winners, but they're just not cases. And, um, and those cases are relatively easy to turn away. But I encourage everyone to reach out, find, find a lawyer. Um, the nice thing about this GameStop situation in particular is that it's been so, um, it's been such a public spectacle that there is no shortage of lawyers who will, um, who will take your email and take a look at your case and see if they think that, that it's yeah. something that they, could, that they could handle. And so, again, that's why we're telling people, lawdog.com, submit your information, and we'll take a look at it. And there's no promises. We might not be able to represent you for any one of 100 reasons, um, but you won't know unless you ask someone. And I'm not saying you have to ask us. I'm saying, but yeah. if you think you have a case, reach out to a lawyer. And it can be frustrating because it can be challenging to find a lawyer who will even respond to you. But um, yeah. but but that's my advice to everyone is send the email and, and see what response you get. Yeah. No, it makes, it makes sense, Alex. And yeah, I appreciate you kind of delineating the the nuances and uh, if you've got a question just reach out um where do you see the future of law doc so beyond you know this kind of moment in time and obviously you know there's <laughs> plenty of plenty of i think uh legitimate cases when you think about what what happened here with with robin hood and but when you think about um like long term where do you what do you see where do you see the vision for law dog like which where do you want to where do you want to take the business yeah, so I'll put on my entrepreneur hat here a little bit more. Um, I guess I'm able to do a little law hat first, though. So in 2016, before President Trump was elected, um, uh, President Obama, um, through the CFPB, which is a federal agency responsible for protecting consumers, they passed a rule that um, forbid um, forced arbitration when it came to financial products with consumers. So like your credit cards, for example, that's another area where a lot of people have arbitration provisions, whether or not they know it. And and as DAR law, that's a, a large amount of the work I do is around credit cards and arbitrations. Well, in 2016, there was a rule that was passed that would have gotten rid of those arbitration provisions. President Trump gets elected. One of the first things he does is kills that rule. So now here we are, right? 2021. New president, new administration. Um, Congress is, you know, very narrowly, entirely controlled by um, by the Democrats, and so there's no um, there's no barrier to that rule coming back. And so I think it's fair to say that the um, the current administration, and definitely a good number of the Democrats, are um, hostile to arbitration, and for good reason. There there are a lot of reasons to not like arbitration. Um, I think it does a really good job when you're talking about kind of small dollar figure, financial losses kind of cases. But when you're talking about a case where, um, you know, you have someone who's been sexually harassed in their workplace and they're being forced into arbitration, which is private and confidential, and they're limited as to the discovery they can take, um, I think that's where arbitration probably does fail more, you know, more often than not, where the, the fullness of a legal proceeding in an open court would be to the benefit of that individual. And, and I, I make you know no qualms about that reality. 
Um, so, so I think we have a lot of hostility towards arbitration, though, because of those negative cases where arbitration does, I think, you know, work work to the detriment of the individual consumer and for the for the you know almost undeniable benefit of the business. Um, versus in those small dollar cases where, like I said, it's kind of everyone can win. The business doesn't have to do class actions, and the savvy consumer makes you know a couple thousand bucks. Life's life's good for them. Um, so, so I think we're going to see increased hostility towards arbitration, but I don't think we're going to see a world where arbitration is no longer relevant. So, um, yeah. so that, because that's a primary question of where does law dog go in the future is if arbitration goes away tomorrow, law dog doesn't go away, but the character of law dog is going to change quite a bit. Um, having said that you can speculate yourself, you know, mm-hmm. into paralysis. So as it is right now, arbitration exists. And you know that's what we know. That's what our our business is um, is kind of launching off this idea of mass arbitration. And so, the first answer to your question of where do we go from here is expanding our mass arbitration offerings, which is um, you know we want to be handling thousands of arbitrations on behalf of consumers against AT and T, T Mobile, Verizon, Chase, you know Chase Bank, uh, American Express, you know all of these various large companies, um, you know Amazon, Facebook, Google, etc. All these companies that are requiring consumers to go to arbitration. We want to empower consumers and democratize access to the law through LawDog, um, so that these uh, affected individuals can get um, you know recompense one way or the other against um, large businesses where traditionally they weren't able to. And then there's also a kind of broader idea of law dog, which is this idea of once we've demonstrated that value to you, that we can help you out on the thousand dollar case, and we've we've built that level of trust that we were here for you when when no one else was here for you, right? When when no other lawyer would take your case, we're here to try and help you out. <clears throat> I think that type of relationship is very valuable, and yeah. there will be different ways that we can. Um, give you know give additional value to our to our clients at that point so maybe it starts off as the $200 dispute against your AT&T bill when you're a college student but then maybe it is um, providing legal services uh reviewing that that first employment contract that you get out of college maybe it's helping you resolve um a dispute that you have related to the purchase of your first home when you're 25 years old or 30 years old or 35 um so i think that's the future of law dog is this idea of starting in this niche of mass consumer arbitration, where I think, I think there is no shortage of work to be done. I think that we have a ton of value to add. And then from there, building out along with our clients. So I, I think we appeal to, to anyone because I think everyone listening to this podcast, regardless of age, they are affected by consumer arbitration, whether or not they know it. And so I think we can appeal to everyone. But I think a big part of our vision is this idea of engaging with young individuals who are going to be more comfortable with the idea of law through an app. Um, yeah. And and the fact that their lawyer is going to be dressed like I am right now, um, like you said, not not stuffy or anything like that, versus um, there's a, a certain, you know, maybe if you're 50 years old, you'd be offended by the way I look and you want to see your lawyer with a tie on and um, and with a, with a formal office, with, uh, with a receptionist um, at the front and and you know, the corner offices. And, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know that that whole vision of what a lawyer is, and so I think that our what we have to offer is going to appeal primarily to um, to a younger demographic that we can grow with, and and so what that might be is that might I think a large part of it's going to be education, mm-hmm. because um, like I said, arbitration. I think part of the reason why arbitration is so relevant, and I like to talk about it, is because people just don't understand it. 
and they don't know what they're getting themselves into. These startup entrepreneurs, they don't, they just don't know the consequences of what it means to say arbitration. And that's just one area of the law where we could probably be educating a lot more. And so we just have all these, you know, we live in tech is, is so dynamic and changing all the time and the legal considerations around it um, are completely relevant. So one area that we've talked about a lot that has us excited is the idea of esports. And so esports is taking off. It's becoming this, you know, multi-billion dollar industry. The amount of betting that occurred on uh, on the Super Bowl was the highest ever. We're seeing legalized um, online gambling starting to take hold in various states. And so with each of these areas, um, there's a lot of questions about what you can and what you cannot do, what your rights are. And these are things that I think tend to appeal to a younger demographic as well. So I think one thing that we're excited to do is just educate people about how um, how the law interacts with all of these things, because um, I think one of the narratives of the stock market over the last 20 years is that we're starting to learn that like tech is not a sector, like tech is becoming our existence, right? I mean, tech is everywhere. Now. Yeah. Um, there was a time when tech was this like separate thing and it's not anymore. You know, if you're a bricks and mortar retailer, you're dead in the water if you don't have an online presence and, you know, and tech. And the nice thing about law, the thing that I like about it and and how it's worked out for me, despite the fact that I didn't have any um, any strong desire to be a lawyer, right, mm-hmm. is um, is that because the law is so broad, similar to tech, um, I've been able to, um, we can appeal to just all sorts of different things. So we can talk about a million different things like esports betting or online gambling. And so... Um, I think the future of Law Dog, I mean, it's incredibly bright. We're, we're really excited about it. We love what we're doing. This Robinhood thing uh, came at kind of a good and bad time. We were kind of slowly trying to start up our presence and, and get out there a little bit. And then this happened and it was, it was almost too good. To, it was too good to pass up. And so we've, um, we've been getting a lot, of, a lot of coverage and talking to a lot of people. And, and we're well equipped. We're going to take good care of everybody who came in. But it's been, um, it's been like drinking from a fire hose a little bit. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, like I said, we're just really excited. We're excited about the future. We're excited about the opportunity to educate individuals about how the law interacts with everything, the same way that tech interacts with everything. And so you kind of see those two running down the same stream together where wherever tech goes, law has to go too. And so we can just, we can touch on everything and we can do it from a really educational standpoint, which I think is important because, you know, democratization is is largely about it's about educating and it's about making sure people understand um understand w- what they can do and where they where they're going so that's our future um it's you know it's, it's very nebulous as is the case with i think with any startup um but the nice thing is we have a very firm foundation we're building on with these you know mass consumer arbitrations and educating people about that and and we're going to grow from there yeah no, Alex, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And when you think about the the legal industry specifically, I think there's a lot of opportunity for tech to kind of come in and disrupt. You've seen, you know, in even legal zoom and a light, you know, very light aspect of of uh, of opening up the opportunity to get access to cheap legal services and contracts and things like that. So I definitely think that there's an opportunity there. So I appreciate you explaining that. I'd love to um, kind of hear a little bit more about the the finance side since you've obviously got some uh, experience there. Could you describe your relationship with money? Yeah, I think I have a unhealthy relationship with money. Um, so I, I grew up. I did. I, can, I mean, I did not grow up in the poorhouse, but I did not grow up particularly well off. I was, um, if nothing else, I was always aware of the amount of money that we had, you know, and and the lack thereof. And so um, I think that's that's created a sort of unhealthy relationship 
that I have with money um, in that I'm, I'm always very fearful of losing it. And so it, it's, it's made me a more risk averse individual. Um, and I, I think that has worked to my detriment in a lot of ways um, because I just don't, sometimes I just have trouble really fully committing to a, to a riskier opportunity. And that's, I think that's a large reason why I work as a, a one-man law firm where I, I know I can't overextend myself with overhead and, and things things along those lines, and I can, I can make a good living like this. And then my partner, Robert, is, I, I mean, I love the guy. He's in so many ways polar opposite of me. I, I like to think of myself as a lawyer who is entrepreneurial, and he's an entrepreneur who happens to be a lawyer. I mean, he's just a million ways at once, you know, just happy to A, B, test the heck out of anything. And and if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And um, and so I I... I see that in a lot of people and, and, and it makes me um, it makes me a little sad that I don't have that same type of ability to kind of throw caution to the wind to a degree that, you know, the, the Mark Zuckerberg move fast, break things, go for it. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to break anything. I don't <laughs> want to break my money. I like my money. I've worked hard to get it. And so, um, so that's my relationship with money. And, and of course, as I grow older and as I've, I've found some, some level of success, um, you know, money is it's freedom at the end of the day. And that's so cliche and go talk to any digital nomad who will tell you the same thing. But <laughs> Um, it, it really is the opportunity to to work from home, to spend time with my family, and um, and so I I value it very highly in the sense that it it does open up a lot of doors in terms of freedom and lifestyle, um, you know, independence that that I'm able to have. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's it's interesting and that that loss aversion aspect, right? You know, it's it's tough to to overcome that and. What I think is uh, also interesting, right? You are an attorney, right? So I, I get the idea of not wanting to move fast and break things, right? It, it makes sense to me uh, from a legal perspective that you might want to, <laughs> you know, not throw too much caution to the wind at certain times. Alex, in terms of the best investment that you've made, what would you say is the best investment that you've made? So I, mean, I could give you some like philosophical answer and say, you know, like, oh, it was some, you know, I don't know, some life experience that I had that, um, you know, that worked out well. But uh, the, the long and short of it is the best investment that I think I've ever made is one that's playing out right now. And um, it's in a, um, and I don't know if I should say the, the company's name out. Right. So I'm a risk averse person that I am. I'll keep the company's <laughs> name out. But it's, uh, it's a company doing some really cool stuff in the space area, um, having to do with the data um, from satellites. And, and it's, you know, one of those backroom companies that you that you don't even think about, right? There's there's nothing um, flashy about it. It's not um, to use a kind of, I don't know, maybe out of touch term. It's, it's not sexy, right? Um, and it, it's just a great company. It's not founded by some 20 somethings out of their garage. It was founded by, you know, individuals who are in their forties and fifties who had been in the industry and they started their own startup. And it's just, it's been a fantastic company. It's, it's growing really well. We're at, um, I was really lucky to get in towards the very beginning of it and invest a, a good chunk of money. And they're probably at about, you know, at about a 10 X return right now. And I, I mean, I think they're gunning for something that would be more like a, you know, 100 or 200 X return. And I think they could get it. I really do because it's a, it's a great company that's doing really well, but that company is my, I'd say that's my best investment I've made. That's awesome. Yeah. Sometimes it's those like utility ones, as you said, the, the ones that aren't as sexy that, uh, that end up being the, uh, the best investments because they, uh, as they say, like the pickaxe and shovels, right? Those were the people that made money in the, the gold boom. It wasn't the people that were mining for gold. It was uh, the folks providing the services and data to a lot of degree for it makes a lot of sense in, in the space space. So on the other side, 
What would you say is the dumbest money mistake that you've made? I put a um, a substantial bet in um, long on Apple last summer. So after COVID had crushed the market pretty good, and Apple everything was starting to come back, and Apple was um, was coming back, and I just felt like Apple was undervalued. And in fact, there's I guess there's more to the story. Back in um, 2019. Uh, at the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, the market was a little bit soft. Apple had sold off dramatically. They they had like one bad quarter, and um, and I I bet on Apple towards the bottom, and it went up. And I had some um, some friends who were like, ah, oh, it's it's you know the market's going down, it's going down. And I kind of I kind of bailed out too early. I made it was a good trade. I did fine, but if I would have stayed in that trade, it would have been incredible. I didn't. And so last summer, um, I see the opportunity. Apple's down, but it's coming back. It's looking strong, and so I um, I put in a, a pretty large bet in favor of Apple. I used options, which of course is always kind of dangerous and gives you extra leverage. And um, and I I chickened out after one day. It was down. It was down a decent bit, and I I got I got nervous, scared. I I sold the position. I said no, no, no. Back to my back to my boring stuff. <laughs> and um, a month or two later. It would have been a like mid seven figure return on that bet, and so wow. I I did not get that, um, and that was that was frustrating. That's a that's a tough uh, a tough pill to swallow when you when you miss out on that because it's one thing to say I wish I would have bought Bitcoin when it was a hundred dollars, um, although I did buy Bitcoin at five hundred dollars and sold that also after smoking. <laughs> um, there's a trend here. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it's one thing to have owned the position, you know, to have done it and, and kind of chickened out. Um, so, you know, that's just one thing that I'm growing as an investor still to this day and learning uh, to be more patient. You know, I talked about Michael Burry earlier and, you know, it, it took a while for his bet against the housing market to pay off. Um, but it did and it paid off nicely. And so I think that that's just part of maturing as an investor. And some people either because they have a different relationship with money to go back to that question um, or because they're lucky or because they have different risk tolerances. Uh, they don't have to learn that lesson. It's a lesson that I've had to learn and I'm, I'm still learning it, but it's, um, it's, it's treating me well. And I'll tell you one company that I'm invested in, um, this is not financial investment advice. I'm not telling you to buy it, is a company called purple innovation. They make mattresses and pillows among other, other things. I love their pillows. Just saying um, <laughs> harmony pillows. Great. But yesterday, um, on on some earnings that were a little soft, they were down thirty percent. And um, maybe a year ago, I would have sold and took it on the chin, but today they were back up thirty percent, um, which does not put them back to where they were because when you're down thirty percent and up thirty percent, that doesn't cancel out. But um, but but back up dramatically. And so I like to think I'm getting a little better at it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, managing the emotions of the buy, you know, the urge to sell, and yeah, uh, super important. Thing. When you think about everyday people, what do you think is the best advice you can give from a financial perspective? What's holding Americans back from from being successful financially? Well, there there are a million reasons, and some of them are systemic, and I I have more questions than answers when it comes to that. But I I think the biggest thing that's holding back most consumers is feeling being uneducated about investing such that it feels like just this completely foreign world. Like that's, that's a, a them thing, not a me thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I know I felt like when I was growing up, I would hear um, sometimes my mom would talk about other people in sort of this, um, this like, you know, this uh, with this aura, right. That these people are very successful. And, and I think some people fall into that mind trap of 
those people are successful. Like those types of people do those types of things. And, and we're not one of those types of people, but that that's, that's bogus, right? Steve Jobs said this idea of, um, you know, the, the rules of the world in which we live are made up by people who are no smarter than you. They just happen to make the rules. Right. And so you, you can control the world that you live in to a degree, of course. And so I think, I think that the issue that a lot of people have is they think that some type of, some type of financial um, exercise or some type of financial um, advice does not apply to them or only applies to them, or this is something that rich people do that poor people do. And, and I would just strongly encourage people not to go down that rabbit hole and to understand that, um, you know, the American dream for all of its flaws, all of its issues still does exist, that there are people that do the rags to riches things and, and make no mistake, luck is a huge part of it. Luck has been a huge part of my success. Um, but I think that people need to, um, need to not feel like that's an inaccessible thing. Like, and investing is the classic example. It's, it's never been easier to invest in the stock market. So if you, you know, one of the big stories of the, of the wealth inequality in America that we're seeing today is this idea that, um, and I'm, I'm going to make up the numbers, but I think I'm pretty close. Like 90% of the equities um, in the stock market are owned by the top 10% wealthiest individuals, right? And so you have this huge disparity. And so as the stock market rallies, it's the it's the top ten percent that are making that are keeping all those gains, and the, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and but it's never been easier to get involved in the stock market between things like fractional shares. So yeah, you can't buy a share of Amazon at three thousand dollars a share, but you can buy a fraction of a share of Amazon and buy buy one tenth of a share for three hundred dollars, um, and yeah. and you can start getting involved. And I think the biggest thing that individuals can do, and and I think this is one of the reasons why I love tech is. You can educate yourself. You know, once you understand something, it becomes a lot less scary. That's something I tell my kids all the time, right? That's a classic parenting move. Is you know, the unknown can be scary, but once you understand something, once you are engaged with it, it's not so scary. And so, technology and Google have enabled everyone, you know, with with their their cell phone. Like you have the the whole sum of human knowledge is in this device right here, and. Um, and, and and you've got to take full advantage of it. And so I think that that's the biggest thing is that people feel put off. They feel like they um, they can't access these various things. And they can. And the first step to doing that is through education. So I just encourage people to read voraciously about this type of stuff. And if it's something that interests you, read about it. And maybe it's something you can't do today. But, um, but at least you'll understand it. And that will be one barrier that's been removed is that you at least understand it. So you're well positioned if the opportunity presents itself to engage with that thing. Yeah. It's great advice, Alex. I really appreciate you sitting down. This has been a lot of fun. I want to leave you with the last word here. So any final kind of wisdom or things that you want to make sure that uh, leave the audience with, feel free. And then also please let us know how we can uh, find you at Law Dog or our folks can connect with you uh, outside of the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name is Alex Dar. I'll start with the plugs. Um, Alex Dar, D-A-R-R. Um, my email's super easy. It's dar at dar.law or just go to dar.law. That's my website. I work with uh, a guy named Robert Sugar. He's my partner in this operation. You can find both of us at lawdog.com, L-A-W-D-O-G.com. And I think my closing thought is to just reinforce what I just said there is there is a whole world out there. And you know, in 2014 and 2015, I was talking about the arbitrage that I got into. And I had no idea that world existed. And it it's put me on this path, like this crazy path from being a like classic large law firm lawyer, wearing my suit and tie every day to 
first I started doing this finance arbitrage and, um, and then, then it took me into this like completely different angle of law. And, and it's all because I just read and I engrossed myself and, and I educated myself and I, I just went for it to a degree and, um, and just, I kind of figured it out as I went along. And so, you know, as much as I am a risk averse individual, I wasn't then, and it's worked out pretty darn well for me. And so, um, I'm not telling everyone to throw caution to the wind. If anyone quits their job because of me saying this, um, I really hope you like thought it through first and you're, and you're not just like, you know, don't just turn in your two weeks notice. Um, but there's the technology presents so many incredible opportunities to enrich our lives and to put us in entirely new directions in terms of what is uh, and is not a fulfilling career. And so I would just encourage people to, to learn about things that are out there. My thing that I tell everybody to learn about is learn about arbitration because you're probably sitting on money that you didn't even know you could be collecting from some of these companies. And when we talk about building ourselves or doing a startup, um, you know, the idea of getting a thousand dollars in an arbitration for some people that can be the catalyst that puts them on the path to something new. That might be the first taste that sends them on a completely different career um, or allows them to feel comfortable so that they can do a startup or, or something along those lines. So um, I would just encourage people to to just educate yourselves, learn about things that interest you, and take advantage of the opportunities that we have today to to educate yourself and um, and reach out to people who can educate you. Because I think there's a lot of people. I mean, this podcast, in, in preparation for going on here today, I listened to a number of the episodes, and you know this this podcast is free, and there's so much great information, not including this episode, right? But I mean, every other episode is incredible, and, um, and and so I just encourage people. You know, get that information, learn, and find what resonates with you, so that you can live a, a fulfilling, happy life. Yeah. Well, thanks, Alex. Yeah, I appreciate you. Uh, you know, being on here today and sharing your time and your wisdom and, and knowledge around arbitrage and arbitration. Um, yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for sitting down. Hey, thanks for having me, William. I really do appreciate it. On your way out, go ahead and pound that subscribe button and share the podcast with others. Don't be selfish. Let others get value as well. And it's the only way that the community grows. So do your friends, family, and coworkers a favor and go ahead and share Silicon Alley with them today. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley podcast. Have a very profitable day. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate. Caught in a circle.